So this evening then we take up the wonderful and glorious subject of the doctrine of God. So the Westminster Confession begins as we considered uh, last month with uh, the scriptures. How can we know God? Uh, He's revealed himself in the creation and in his works of providence. Uh, And we can see him there. There's evidence that there is a God and something of his power and Godhead, of his wisdom, of his great wisdom. Uh, But it is only when we have his word, the Holy Scriptures, that we might know him. in uh, far, far greater detail know so much more about him and uh, his nature and particularly of the Lord Jesus Christ the Saviour now when we read the scriptures we say of the scriptures and, and think of the shorter catechism what do the scriptures principally teach the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man And uh, we can sometimes, I think, we can bypass, in a sense, the doctrine of God and go to his will for us. But we must always remember that God is revealing himself. The Bible is God's revelation of himself. And so it's uh, right that the, uh, the confession and in, in, in put together in wisdom uh, begins with the scriptures. This is the foundation of our knowledge. But then the very beginning of our knowledge has to be of God and who he is and what he is like. A particular focus upon him. Uh, he's already in the confession been introduced to us as the creator, as the author of scripture, but now with particular focus on what God is and who God is. And it's also, as we think about this, as we think about coming this evening to spend some time, say three quarters of an hour to, uh, to an hour on the doctrine of God, what is the use of studying doctrine? And what's the use of studying the doctrine of God? Aren't there more relevant topics that we might take up Uh, You might think of the various moral issues of the day and controversies of the day. Yes, there is a time and a place to consider such things and and God's word equips us to deal with the moral issues of the day, of every day in which we live. We are equipped, truly furnished by the scriptures for all good works in whatever age we might live in. But we must always remember when we come to the Bible and yes, here is a roadmap for us as as to where to go in this world. A a, a lamp that would show us the the way in front of us. But that we remember that the Bible is God's revelation of himself. And if we would know anything rightly, if we would would think rightly, correctly about any area of life and especially of doctrine, we must know God. He's re- he reveals himself as the beginning and the end. The, in, the, the, in terms of the letters of the Greek, Greek alphabet, they're Alpha and the Omega. 
And if we want to know where we have come from, if we want to know why we are here, if we want to know where we are going, if we want to know what's wrong with us and, and with the world, we have to begin with God. To use the, the to remember the words of Solomon in Proverbs 1 verse 7, and as we find it repeated in other places, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And if we would so if we would have knowledge, we must fear God. And if we would fear God, we must know God. We must know, uh, and so we, we, knowing God and fearing God, then we can begin to know all truth, rightly. And also we can think of it in this way, that we've been created to glorify God. We've been created in the image of God to be like Him. Christians are being remade in God's image. Paul says in Colossians 3.10 that we are being renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. And so if this is what we have been created for to be like God, and if this is God in his grace saves sinners uh, and, and his purpose is holiness that they might be like him, then we, if we would be like him, if we would pursue that end of holiness and God-likeness, we need to know what and who God is. In the uh, in the confession, this chapter is, is uh, chapter two of God and of the Holy Trinity is relatively brief. It's only three sections or three paragraphs. But I I think you will agree, and, and I hope that uh, in the meantime, in, in the last month, that you have yourself and in your family being uh, read uh, read through and, and uh, considered something of what is taught here and also the scripture proofs but that also tonight as we read and, and as I mentioned some things in, in terms of by way of outline in that sense and explanation that even though it is relatively brief it is so full that the, the uh, language that is used is precise and also that you will notice how biblical the language is. Uh, that it is a, a, a summary of what all of the Bible says about who God is, about what He is like. And so I would commend to you also this chapter for your own to, to read through and, and meditate on God uh, using this as a help and particularly the references to the scriptures as to the testimony of God about himself. As we think on this chapter in, of uh, what it teaches us about God, uh, there are different ways it's being broken down, if I can put it that way, but uh, that there are five things that we can see about God here, in a, in a general sense, uh, we see firstly the existence of God, secondly the nature of God, thirdly the perfections of God, fourthly the independence of God, and fifthly the Trinity. And so the, this chapter begins then with the existence of God. There is but one only living and true God. 
notice also, even with this language, and, and uh, it's you know, sometimes these words, because we find them, they're in the confession, they're in the catechism, and they can roll off our tongue, but understand that it's not that every sentence in, uh, or, or phrase in the confession is taken directly from Scripture, but how steeped in Scripture these men were, and that this confession is, in terms of also its conciseness, that these are the very words of Scripture, and I don't know if you have if you have your confession with you, but the proofs there we see refer to First Thessalonians one nine, for they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And Jeremiah ten ten, but the Lord is a tr- is the true God; He is the living God and an everlasting King. And so just. Yes, to uh, just also as a as an aside, as it were, when when you uh, are uh, yourself or helping your children to learn the catechism, perhaps, which I'd commend to you as a profitable thing, uh, that is not the same as memorizing scripture. That is, it is man's words summarizing the doctrine of scripture. That, uh, that you are remembering and that is a helpful, it's a tool for us to remember the doctrine of Scripture. But realise this, that these statements that you would be learning, uh, and, and we are to be hiding God's Word itself in our hearts as well, that, that is very important, but these statements that you would be learning are so scriptural and even taking the very words of Scripture, just to, as an aside. So there is no... Well, what we should see. There is no... Uh, th- this opening statement is not uh, a defence. It is not defensive. It's not apologetic. Uh, suggest, uh, not a suggestion. It, it's not uh, trying to prove God. No, it's a declaration. There is but one only living and true God. And it's a statement of faith. By faith we believe and that one, that one to be living and true, real, though we cannot see him. As Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And that faith is ultimately, it is the gift of God. But it is a declaration of truth. It is not opposed to reason. Faith is not opposed to reason. And, and this is not truth as opposed to science. No, rather, and as the scriptures teach also, this is a truth evident to all. Evident in the creation, evident in God's works of providence, evident even in ourselves, in our own consciences, and, and as we look upon our own bodies, even though so many blindly and willfully deny it. And uh, even in this statement, uh, just uh, to mention it, that, that uh, it's a statement of truth, but automatically, immediately, uh, what is what what is uh, what falsehoods are cut down? Uh, polytheism is cut down. No, there's one, only one God, and also that this one God, He is set apart from all the so-called gods of the nations, the idols uh, of the nations, and we can think of the the scripture. In First Corinthians chapter eight, in verses uh, verse five and six, 
For though there, be, though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. So the existence of God set forth. But then uh, the nature of God. Secondly, the nature of God. And uh, I mentioned in the introduction that we need to know what God is and who God is in that sense. And there are those, and uh, you might have come across this, or this might have struck you yourself. In the Shorter Catechism, we had that question, question four, what is God? And there are those who have said, well, look how impersonal that is. As soon as you ask, what is God? You're making God an object. We should be asking, rather, who is God? Now, of course, we do want to know who God is. But what kind of being is God? We are creatures. What is God? And so we consider then his nature. What is God? God the uh, confession continues is infinite in being and perfection a most pure spirit invisible without body hearts or passions now when I'm, I'm, I'm in that sense I'm, I'm giving points in that sense and, and suge- you know, reading certain parts it's not so much in, in some of these things we, we learn also of God's nature in, in the rest of the description about God but that in this, fir- this first statement we are given this, this is set before us as to what God is and he is an, one who is infinite and in that statement who is infinite in being and perfection we are in, in that sense we're, we're given a way to, to try to understand what God is and what he is like. When I say what God is, he is infinite in being. Now what is infinite? Infinite means without limit. The opposite of infinite is finite. means limited, bounded. God is without limit. He is without bounds. And so as we think of what God is, in terms of his nature, he has no bounds. That he is infinite belongs with that truth the scriptures reveal that he is a spirit. This is what Jesus said, isn't it? And looking in John chapter 4, verse 24, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. If God had a body, as some have pretended over the ages, today probably the most famous of such heretics would be the Mormons. Uh, they believe that God has a body, but there are others who have uh, held this, this sort of view. But if God had a body, he would not be infinite, because bodies are limited. However big that body is, and even when we speak of, you know, we're going to speak of an ocean as a body of water. A body, it's contained within an area. If God had a body, he would not be infinite, but he is a spirit. And he's not 
just any spirit. There are other spirits. God's given us souls. God's created the spirits or the angels as the Bible uh, speaks of them. But just just being a spirit doesn't make it doesn't make a being infinite. Angels are not infinite. Our souls are not infinite. They're bounded with creatures. But God is the most pure spirit and he's infinite. He is the father of spirits, as the Bible says. And uh, spirits, confession says, he is, uh, God is invisible. If you are invisible, you don't have a body. Uh, if you have a body, you are visible. The body is visible. God uh, is invisible and he is without body, without hearts or passions. It's when we think of uh, parts, you know, that, that, that statement without body, parts or passions. So God doesn't have a body, he's a spirit. We understand that. Now parts, God doesn't, we have body parts. Here is our body, it's made up of parts. There's, there's my hand, there's my foot and here's my head. They're the parts of me. We can also speak of parts. There is, God has created us and while we might not understand how these things uh, belong together or, or in, in that sense in terms of God's creation but we, we God's created us body and soul or body and spirit. There's that aspect. God doesn't have that. He's all spirit. He's only spirit. He is, doesn't have a body so he doesn't have body parts but also we can't divide God up. We can't divide God. There is not a, a holy part of God and a, a, a righteous part of God and a merciful part of God or any such thing. Rather, God, there is what theologians have spoken of as, this expresses what theologians have spoken of as the simplicity of God. That is, as, as God said through Moses to Israel, Back in, in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. So there is an, a, a fundamental unity and simplicity in God such that he, we cannot divide Him. And uh, we also say He does not have passions. God is love. God is ever blessed, but He does not become. And uh, he, he is righteous and angry with the wicked every day. But we are not to think of God as becoming angry or uh, being given to sorrow in that sense. He is. Uh, this doesn't describe God. This describes us. Uh, Louis Burkhoff, who was a, uh, a reformed theologian in the early 20th century, he has a systematic theology, and there he, he speaks of this simplicity of God, and in terms of this without body, parts, or passions. And he says this, it means that God is not composite, so he's not made up of different parts, and he's not susceptible of division in any sense of the word. This implies, among other things, that the three persons in the Godhead are not so many parts of which the divine essence is composed and that God's essence and perfections are not distinct 
and that the attributes are not super added to his essence. So what he's saying is this, and when we come to the Trinity uh, briefly at the end, uh, that uh, we're not to think of, it's not that uh, when we think of the Trinity that we are to imagine that, uh, that, that Father, Son and Holy Spirit are parts of God. We, we can't understand the Trinity ultimately, but we're not to think of the, the, the God had divided or any separable parts. We're not to think of either that there is God uh, the, the essence of God is nature as it were and, and then his attributes or the things that we understand about God are sort of added to him in any way no God is infinite as to his being and what this means is we think that's what he is but that being infinite then we think of that in terms of what he is like the uh, confession speaks of how he is immutable that means unchangeable he is immense that means he fills all things he is in every place and in every even beyond every place in that sense the, to say every place is the universe it's the creation but God fills the heavens and the earth he cannot be contained by them there's a reference in the proofs to Jeremiah 33, uh, 23, 23. Am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him? Saith the Lord, do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? So God's also eternal. He's incomprehensible. As we think of these big words in that sense, and words we might not use so often, eternal, yes, but understand that, in a sense, we can think of these things, these, these perfections of God, in terms of infinity. That as we think of time in which we are bound, we are temporal creatures with the creation, but as regards time, God is infinite. He is eternal. He, is, he inhabits eternity. As regards space, we are bounded, we are, we are in our bodies and we are uh, limited. The creation is, has boundaries. God, as regards space, is immense. He's omnipresent, he's in every place and he, he cannot be contained by the creation. As regards knowledge, again, we are finite, we know little. And even the, the greatest heights of knowledge we can attain will be limited God, in terms of knowledge, is infinite. And so the confession also, reflecting the scriptures, says that God is most wise and that he is incomprehensible. What does that mean, incomprehensible? Can we not know God at all? No, it means that we cannot discover the depths of God. We cannot, we can know God by his grace truly because he's revealed himself in the scriptures his word is, is a lamp to our feet a light to our path he, he teaches us he gives understanding to the simple he, uh, he, he uh, shows us himself we can know him truly 
but we cannot know him fully. He is incomprehensible. And so, that as we think on the nature of God, that statement that God is infinite in being and perfection, that helps us understand something of what he is and also of what he is like in terms of his nature. But then the, the third point, and we're going on for the rest of this uh, first paragraph in, in the, the confession, is the perfections of God. The perfections of God. He is almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Can you hear the texts of scripture referred to here? Sometimes whole uh, sentences there in the description of God, especially that uh, the Lord in in the centre of that part I just read from from Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7, when the Lord revealed His glory to Moses. His goodness, uh, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and and so on, basically as we read it. And so we speak of the the confession speaks of the perfections of God, infinite in perfection. And we often speak of when we are trying to understand God and what the Bible says about God and what He is like, we speak of His attributes. We speak of uh, what God is like, we speak of His attributes. Uh, That is, and we have to understand, that is not that we give anything to God. Not that we, uh, in that sense, that we attribute anything to God. Rather, these are things that can be said of God because He's revealed Himself in this way. Now, we haven't... Uh, this is about what does God tell us about Himself. And also, uh, in terms of... If we go back to the simplicity of God, uh, that, uh, that uh, and the unchangeableness of God, that He is... Uh, we're not to separate... We're not to... We might distinguish these things, these attributes, but we're not to separate them. So as we think of God's absolute power, He's been almighty. He is in the exercise of His power and might. He is most holy and most wise and most free and so on. These things belong together. Now as we think on God's attributes, His perfections, uh, theologians have spoken through the centuries of uh, ha- have made a, a division in terms of understanding these things between those attributes which are incommunicable and those which are communicable. So think of, in terms of understanding those words, think of communication. That is, we, in that sense, when we communicate, generally it's by way of speech by way of talking but we can communicate in other ways we are giving information to someone else when we think of the the attributes of God his incommunicable attributes 
are the things that only belong to him. They cannot be given, well, they, they have not been, but they cannot be given to any other. And that is when we think of God as immutable, unchangeable, uh, as immense, as eternal, as incomprehensible, as almighty. These, this, this, these describe who God is. Uh, this does not describe anyone else in any way in all creation. Because God is separate from his creation. But there are also those communicable attributes. And that is those things that we see in God in perfection and in the, the highest sense, in the absolute sense, but that we might also see those things in his creatures. And so we can think of wisdom, we can think of holiness, we can think of freedom, we can think of love and mercy and so on. The uh, confession speaks of God as most wise, as most holy, as most free and so on, most loving and gracious. And, and, and yet that in regards to these things, that we can also see these things in his creatures, whether it be the angels, whether it be of, uh, of men bearing his image. And, but we must understand that though we speak of these as communicable, yet anything that we see of wisdom or holiness or, or love in the creature is but a dim reflection and, a, and because of sin a poor reflection of God's perfection and, uh, and so that it, it, so that even you know, as we think of holiness yes there are the holy angels around God's throne God uh, calls his people to holiness and enables holiness and yet that we can say as, as we find in the scriptures in Revelation 15 verse 4 that confession in prayer to God for th- but for thou only art holy that is God in and of himself is holy most holy and as we think on in all these things uh, that uh, come back to that, that word immutable, unchangeable realise that there are those who paint God as in that sense because he is unchangeable they would react against this and say that he he is unmoving, he's like a stone and, and how can we, how can he help us and respond to us in our time of need? But understand that he, if he would be God, he must be immutable. He, he must be unchangeable. And uh, Robert Shaw, uh, he uh, was a, a, Presbyter, a free Presbyterian minister from the 19th century. Uh, this excellent commentary on the Westminster Confession, the Reformed Faith, recently uh, republished again. Uh, but that's it's very helpful and he says this and, and this has been said by, by many others in different ways uh, if he were to change if God were to change it must either be to the better or to the worse it's the truth isn't it if, if there's going to be change it was either, things won't be the same it will either be to the better or to the worse he cannot change to the better because that would imply past imperfection he cannot change to the worse, for then he would cease to be perfect. So, as we think on God's, the, that he is infinite in perfection and he is unchangeable in perfection and all 
uh, of who he is. And uh, as we think on his immutability, Malachi, Malachi 3 verse 6, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Because he is, yes, he is unchangeably holy and righteous and unchangeably, in that sense, angry with sin and must deal with sin justly, but he is also unchangeably merciful and good and faithful to his promise. Therefore, we are not consumed. Uh, the fourth point this evening is uh, the independence of God. And even though, as we think on the really the first two sections, uh, describe God to us, but the second section, if the first is more God as he is in himself, it's not that there's no mention of the creature, it speaks of that how God is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, but in the second section or paragraph, it describes God particularly in relation to his creation and shows him to be absolutely independent of his creation. God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself and is alone in and unto himself, all sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he hath made, nor deriving any glory of them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and hath most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever he pleaseth. In his sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. He is most holy to all his counsel, in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men, and every other creature, whatsoever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. And so what we see here is that God stands apart from the creation. He's independent of the creation. He is absolutely self-sufficient. He does not stand in need of anything. He did not, make, he did not create out of need. He does not uh, have us. He, he does not save us out of need. He does not uh, need anything from his creatures. Uh, he is sovereign overall. It's described here, as, and we see in that sense, uh, the application of those things said about him in the first section. He is most free. He's most absolute. His knowledge is not dependent upon anyone telling him anything. We cannot give to him anything. And uh, he is most holy in all that he does and he is worthy of all worship and service and obedience that he requires and he requires it of us. Now in what is described of God here in relation to his creation uh, we see a mention of his sovereign rule of his infinite knowledge and of his counsels uh, with, we are 
being prepared in that sense, or what, what, the, what follows from this is God's eternal decree, which is the next chapter, which follows from who He is. Uh, but that is, uh, that's very much expanded on. So the independence of God, the absolute sovereign rule and independence of God. But then finally, the Trinity. The Trinity, in the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. A few things that we can note here, it's very, it's, we can see the wisdom and carefulness of uh, the Westminster Divines in, in the order uh, of things here. There has been established from Scripture the existence of God, the nature of God, the perfections of God, that there is one true and living God. That is clear throughout all of the Scripture. And then they come, these, this, this groundwork laid, they come to the mystery of the Trinity. And uh, we've been, and particularly in studying the Scriptures and, and the proofs and, and the Scriptures in regard to these things, in that sense, we've been prepared for this difficult doctrine. Uh, the, 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 the framework has been given to us. Whatever we learn here in terms of a plurality in the Godhead, three persons in the Godhead, and whatever we might not understand about that, yet we know this, there is one true and living God. So it's not when we, when we find in the Scriptures revealed to us the Father as God, the Son as God, the Holy Spirit as God. There is no contradiction. We, we, we begin, there is one God, and then we see, we learn, there is one God, but in three persons. And also that we understand there are no parts in God. It's not that the Son is part of God and the Spirit is part of God and the Father is part of God. No, one God without parts. Three persons. You can also notice that this is very, really a very brief section on the Trinity. Uh, particularly when we compare it to, to the creeds and statements in the early centuries of the church and, and leading up to this. Uh, we're not to understand this as a despising of those things or a rejecting of those things, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed and such things, but rather, and, and this is building on those and, and summing up, and that's just bringing the conclusions of what has been done. And I think we can appreciate the straightforwardness and simplicity of this statement. We are told, quite simply, that there is one God, one substance. He is a spirit, but we, we understand, we, we thinking of there being one God and one power in eternity. No one, no person in the Godhead has, has existed longer than any other. From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God 
Father, Son and Holy Spirit. One God, but in the Godhead there are three persons. And so, by this simple statement, the anti-Trinitarians are excluded. The Unitarians, you might think of the so-called Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons and so on, the Jews, the Muslims, so also are excluded the the polytheists or the tritheists who said, well, there were three gods, Father, uh, God, the, the, the Father, one God, the Son, another God, the Holy Spirit, another God. And there are proofs given. The proofs given are not exhaustive. There's certainly much more in the Scriptures that could be brought to bear, but key texts given uh, for our instruction. But then also, in, and uh, in that sense, uh, the, the, that basic doctrine of the Trinity is the same as, well, it is the same doctrine, but this very similar summary to what's in the Shorter Catechism, which is an excellent and helpful summary. But then in the next part, we are uh, told, taught about what is called the personal properties of the three persons of the Godhead. And uh, when I say uh, we are taught that, this is. So with the confession, with the Westminster Confession, there is also produced uh, the, the larger and shorter catechism. And uh, these were given as helps for memorization but for instruction by way of question and answer as to the doctrine contained in the confession. And in the larger catechism, question 10, there is this question, what are the personal properties of the three persons in the Godhead? It is proper... To the, son, to the Father to beget the Son, and to the Son to be begotten of the Father, and to the Holy Ghost to proceed from the Father and the Son from all eternity. And basically what has been given to us there in confession in the Catechism is the language of Scripture. We might not understand how it is, or what, what, what it is that the Father etern eternally beget the Son, or that, that the Son is eternally begotten, or that the Spirit eternally proceeded, uh, proceeds from the Father and the Son. But this is the language of Scripture, and, and the proofs are appended. But that we understand that most basically this, in terms of God and the persons in the Godhead, the Father has always been the Father. The Son has always been the Son. The Spirit has always been the Spirit. And they are one God, equal in power and glory. And so we're given in this sense brief chapter, few words certainly if we compare it to the to the chapter in in uh, in most to, in, in in most books. But we're given so much about what God is like and who He is, and truly. Ought we not to, are we not left as we even consider these things briefly? Same as, as the scriptures ask, who is like God? Who is like God? This is what, isn't this what the, we read in Isaiah 40? Isaiah, to whom then will ye liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare unto him? There are none like him. He is the one true and living God realize this, that there are many who, when they learn even something of this doctrine of God from 
the scriptures and summed up here and in many other places. What they know of God, they resent of God. They resent His power and glory, His holiness and righteousness. They resent His majesty. They resent His freedom. And they reject Him. And they say, whether with their mouths, but in their hearts, there is no God. Atheism is a moral choice. It's not an intellectual decision weighing up all the evidence. It's a moral moral rebellion against God. Beware of resenting God for who He is. Beware too of making a God in your own image. We can take we can, we can take something of the doctrine of God. We can take this aspect or this attribute, this perfection, and we can zone in on that. Now, there's nothing, it is right that we spend time on the attributes of God, meditating upon them, mulling over them, considering who God is and, and how it is that we are called to serve Him and how it is we're called to be like Him, but that we can, we can do that to an attribute and exclude others and minimise others diminishing others we might focus on his love and ignore his justice and his holiness or we might focus on his justice and his righteousness and forget his mercy and goodness we must beware of making a God in our own image because know this that as soon as we depart with faith in God does not include cannot include, it does not include a comprehensive knowledge of God that is beyond us as creatures but it does include and require a true knowledge of God and as soon as any of God's attributes are rejected, as soon as any aspect of what God is like is known and rejected or misconstrued then God is rejected rather let us acknowledge that we cannot know God as He is. We, we cannot fathom His greatness, His majesty. We cannot get to the depths of God or the height of God or, or the breadth of God. But seek to have your mind renewed in the knowledge of Him. That your understanding of God would be formed and reformed by the word of God. And not just to know more, not just for brain knowledge, but that you might love Him. The doctrine of God, rightly received, understood, leads to great, not just great intellect, but great love and devotion let our great desire be for him and that we might be able to say these words with Asaph in Psalm 73 whom have I in heaven but thee and there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee my flesh and my heart faileth but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever for lo they that are far from thee shall perish Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. But it is good for me to draw near.
to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. Amen.